When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, I always liked you, Byron. But you never knew when to shut up. Even bad men love their mamas. Now I think it's time for everybody to go home. everybody, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. Welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. You probably know how this works already. Mike and I, longtime friends and film fanatics, watch movies separately, but talk about them on the podcast for the first time. Today, I'm really excited. This was a Dan pick. We're going to be doing 310 to Yuma, the 2007 film by James Mangold, written by Halstead Wells, Michael Brandy, Derek Haas, but based upon the short story by Elmer Leonard, which, which I had read the day I rewatched, I watched the film. It's great that the story just concerns the two guys in the hotel room. Um, and, and, you know, this is, we'll talk about how this is kind of a remake, although that's the wrong word for the 1957 movie with Glenn Ford and Van Heflin. But we'll get to that in a minute. Mike, in our first spot, we always talk about our overall take on the film. So what was yours? I thought that this was a really exciting movie to watch. Obviously, I was drawn to the star power because, you know, who who doesn't like uh, Russell Crowe? Uh, and it, I, I just... I really enjoyed this movie all the way through, and I think that it's meant to be enjoyed. There's some Westerns that I think get gritty to the point that that they're almost the grit is the point. But this is but not true grit, but not true grit, uh, right? Th this just has everything about it that you would want from an American movie start to finish. And this movie really knows what you want and anticipates your needs and delivers right on time. I think the thing that I liked the best was kind of the Agatha Christie structure of the group that's, uh you know, that that's bringing him to the train station, right. disappearing or dying uh, one by one. Um, there's some unbelievable performances and good lines uh, in this movie, but it's, it's just, it's a pleasurable movie, no matter where it takes place. Um, and it's, it, it's a hearkening back to, I think earlier, earlier film structure, this, this no, this film knows that it's meant to be enjoyed or meant for your amusement and not for your interpretation. Although there is, there are things to interpret. Yeah. There's a lot in there, right? It's what you call a movie with ideas, right? It's not just, just guns, right? You know, I said before the 1957 film, which I've seen. And, and of course I love that movie. And I, we said true grit because people call the Coen brothers version of true grit, like a remake. And we know like, it's not a remake. It's like a reimagining of the source material. And uh, which I happen to think is better than the, the the famous one with John Wayne, but um, this one is the same kind of thing, and that's one of many reasons I thought to myself after I finished this is that this movie should not exist. This movie, this this 2010 version of Three Tenths of Yuma, should not exist, right? First of all, it's a, it's been done already, and it's been done really well, right? It's a western in 2007, right? It's 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 serious. It's got like serious, you know, it's not just for laughs. It's got expensive talent. 
Um, it's got action, but I think the movie's really about the characters more than the guns. And I think that James Mangold's like, no, trust me, like you're gonna really let you're really gonna enjoy this, and you're gonna enjoy it for all the reasons you like other things. I think westerns kind of involuted on themselves a little bit, or became about themselves. Right after uh, I'm talking post John Ford western. Right, you're talking about the is, Wild Bunch or or, or Unforgiven is 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 about itself. Right. But this movie is not about itself. It's about. Right amusing its audience which yeah. i found uh really refreshing that's that's i think if, yeah. if i had to find a, a term to sum up this movie it's refreshing that's a great word now james mangold who directed this of course he he this is like a dry run for logan which he made in 2017 10 years later which we've covered on 15 minute film fanatics and it, didn't it remind you of logan like the look of it and the pacing and the landscape i mean everything about it the music i thought was great and i don't know if it has the same team uh, like uh, same cinematography team, but again, I I wouldn't be surprised. But right. the you could say the same things about Logan, right? If you go back and watch our episodes, it takes place in the future, but it's not it's not meant to confuse you. It's meant to amuse you, and there there is there is symbolic meaning, there is pathos. It's a fun movie to watch, but but ultimately that's the point of it. Well, let's talk about that pathos because I think that you know, like Logan, this is a movie about a, a good man who's forced into a corner, right? So I think you do care about the characters in this film, right? Christian Bale says, I love that line. You said before, it's got great lines. How about when he says, I've been standing here on one foot for three years waiting for God to do me a favor. Like <laughs> That's a great line. And I, I like, he's just like Logan. He's the unwilling hero to whom the audience is yearning, like, come on, man, go in there and do it. And he does it. And of course, just like also in Logan, he, he dies for his principle. He ends up like being sacrificed for his principles. But I think the difference between this and Logan, this is what I want to talk about in part one, is that the thing that's, that ties this movie together is that it's it's about a journey, a, a literal journey to get Russell Crowe to Claritin, but it's also about Christian Bale's journey of self-respect. Because remember the very first thing that happens in the movie? Yeah, he he backs off from the fight while they're yeah, burning the barn. Right, and he lets bur- the cows get scattered. Yep, he's a victim right in the beginning, right? And and you know he says like uh, she says we got to leave, and he says I'm tired of watching my boys go hungry. I'm tired of the way they look at me. I'm tired of the way you don't. He hates himself. Um, I love when Alice says um his wife she says you know don't do it, don't run out there, Dan. No one will think less of you. And he says no one can think less of me, and that includes himself, right? So he's been living trying to get the self respect. We find out later how he lost his leg. Remember, he told his kids it was defending the Capitol, but it was because he got shot by one of his own guys. He says, you try telling that to your son. But at the end, remember what he says? He says, you just remember your old man walked Ben Wade to that train station when nobody else could. And I think that the movie does that in, a, in the perfect touch with the perfect amount of pressure to the viewer to make you go along with Christian Bale. It has some of the same set pieces as Logan. And I think what I mean by entertaining is that... Um, if you try to make high art or something, you get maybe three set pieces um, and you you got to plan where they are. And this movie is all set. It's like an all island set of set pieces that lead you across a river. Right. But so here's what I mean by the relationship between that and Logan. Right. To try to tell which movie I'm talking about. A dangerous killer is in the home uh, in a totally domestic situation, eating dinner and trying to pretend like everything's normal, even though it's totally not normal and only his comrades know. Right. So which movie am I talking about? Both. Both. Right. And it's just so it's 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 not necessarily a repeat of the earlier movie. It's just some of the same domestic tensions and some of the same visual symbolism is exactly the same. But between both movies, however, when it is Russell Crowe, it does work really well. Um, He's very charming, handsome, sinister and dangerous. 
and they don't need to really overly dramatize that that the, the only thing that they get away with there's like an anti-kicking the puppy moment where the rest of his gang is getting ready for murder and he's drawing the bird right and if you're drawing a bird before you commit a murder you either don't understand murder or understand it too well Welcome back. In part two, we always like to talk about a moment or a scene that we thought was really indicative of the film as a whole. Mike, why don't you start? Yeah, I hate to beat a dead horse here, but there is one way that you can tell what James Mangold is up to, which is uh, there's a there's a moment. It's almost two thirds of the way through the movie where a, a character pops in the movie and then immediately pops out of the movie and you go, is that Luke Wilson? Uh, and there's there's a lot of moments like that where uh, people make cameos. It's a cameo heavy movie. Um, exactly like using Christian Bale and Russell Crowe, because we know that Hollywood has an important either or rule when it comes to that kind of star power, not only for budgetary reasons, because often stars like that, it's either a gimmick movie, right? Like what putting Pacino and De Niro in the same movie, you know, but not in The Godfather, right? Uh, so it's, it's either for the pleasure of the audience or because the movie's about itself. And I definitely don't think it's the latter. It's because... That's what audiences like. They like to root for Christian Bale and they enjoy seeing Russell Crowe. So why not Luke Wilson? Why not the girl who played the romantic lead in uh, in Hocus Pocus in like 1992? You know, who's why not Peter Fonda? Why not Peter Fonda? Why not Peter Fonda? Right. Who who pops into the movie and you go, huh, Peter Fonda's in a Western. Then he's uh, uh, he's dead. Never mind. Right. And that's that's kind of the structure of the film. And right. And he he dies ignobly, almost funny. Right. Because if you see Peter Fonda in in a Western, you go. Are they going to do like a whole Henry Fonda thing? And then he gets thrown off a cliff. Right. Right. With with a funny line. Right. He throw this. That's what I mean by good lines. He throws them off and he said, I liked you, but you never could keep your ba- your mouth shut. Even bad men love their mamas. There there is something tonally in this movie that while it is a, about important things, while it is about the West and self-respect and trains, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, uh, it is about surprising and delighting the audience and packing as much into this movie as I think audiences will enjoy. Uh, I definitely enjoyed Luke Wilson. What What's your moment? Well, my moment is, it's funny, it's tied to part of that star power. Do you know who the original person, who was originally offered the role of Ben Wade before Russell Crowe? Oh, you know I forgot. Who? It's really, yeah, it's silly though. It was Tom Cruise. Right. It was Tom Cruise who would, who couldn't, you can't imagine. I mean, sometimes you hear about these casting things and you're kind of like, Oh, maybe, I don't know, but you can't imagine Tom Cruise in that part. I I've stopped listening to you. Cause I know that if Tom Cruise had played the villain in this movie, you'd have already watched it three times. We would have done both a, an episode on it and a one shot. You know, the audience would be tired of hearing about this movie. Be that as it may. I think that Russell Crowe was great. And and of course, like, you know, in the movie, Christian Bale does all the heavy lifting and Russell Crowe's job is to walk around and be handsome and charming. So I want to talk about my moment has to do with Russell Crowe. It's the moment where, as you said before, there's this domestic scene and Russell Crowe is having dinner with Christian Bale's family. And it's when Christian Bale tells his son, William, don't talk to him. Don't talk to him. Right. And they're very adamant about that. Like, don't let him talk to you. Right. And I think what's going on in this film, again, not in a super, super pronounced way, but in a way just enough to make the emotions of the end pay off is that you have this idea of two fathers vying for the kid, vying for William. And it's almost like Shane, but we don't have Shane. We said HUD was a movie. It was Shane without Shane. Here mm-hmm. you have, you have right, Joe Starrett, you know, Van Heflin, who, ironically, who plays Joe Starrett, he gets a Shane to help him out. But Dan Evans does not get a Shane, right? So I think in that moment, 
you got a couple things going on. First of all, everyone is cooler than your dad when you're 14. Every 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 other guy is cooler than your father, right? And Russell Crowe was certainly very cool. I love when he has the nerve to say, can you cut the fat off? Can you cut the grizzle off, right? He asked the kid, have you ever been to Dodge City? So he's been everywhere and he's he's alluring. He's the devil. He's trying to tempt them, right? So even when they're in the hotel room at the end, which is what the short story is about, and he says, uh, well, you know, $1,000, that can get you a lot. And I love how Christian Bale is kind of like, yeah, but how would I, how would I spend it? They, how would they know? Like he's actually kind of considering the offer, right? But we're drawn to Ben Wade too. Because of Russell Crowe's charisma, we're drawn to him too. We see how he operates. And the movie is about, you know, that tension and and Christian Bale trying to keep his kid innocent of that because he knows how tempting the devil is. And you can't help as a viewer though, get sucked in because you think Russell Crowe was so much fun to watch. Because the, the lines are fun, so you, you don't yeah. want it to end. And right, and so they do that over and over. It's like what they do when they sleep by the campfire. I mean, I don't know if he's not a Shane. He's he's kind of like an anti-Shane. Because what I'll say is the guy, the first guy who disappears Agatha Christie style is the guy who burned down his barn, right? Who gets stabbed in the neck with a fork, with fork. over and over and over. <laughs> which, you know, the, for, the fork that he sees. Exactly. Now, audiences both love that kind of stuff because it's like, hey, you think just because he's got those handcuffs on that he's not dangerous, right? Because movie logic tells you that if right. someone's handcuffed <laughs> that they can't do anything for whatever reason. But also Shane style, he does take care of the bully first. Right. <laughs> but also you do, you know, we're told and we've done our episode on Shane. We encourage you to listen to. We love Shane, but you never get to see Shane's past crime, so to speak, as a gunfighter. You're told he's a gunfighter. He has those, Alan Ladd has those quick reactions where you're like, okay, this guy's high strung, but you never get to see Alan Ladd kill a guy with a fork. Correct. Uh, all you have, all he's got is the fringed pants to let you know that he used to sleep out in the, in the dust. Okay, welcome back. Some part three, of course, we always talk about the title or the ending or the big takeaway. I, I feel like we're not going to talk about the title in this one. So Let's let's put the audience's pleasure aside for a second and actually get into what the ending of this movie is trying to do. After that great set piece of how they get from one building to the next, to the next, to the train station, which is beautifully shot. And I couldn't stop thinking of what we've said about heat. I, I could, was thinking the same thing. Right. And what's our joke about heat? If you gave you us all the money. You could give me a camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could give me a team of 60 people and still it would be totally unintelligible who was shooting at who, where, like spatially, what direction we're going in. How right. does he do? Right. Because you never lose track of that in this movie. Never. Spatially, you you know exactly what direction they're going to. And then if you do a point of view shot, you know where I'm trying to get. That's right. very complicated. Yeah. If they gave us all the money in the world, we the two of us would stand there like scratching our heads like, uh. No, I couldn't even whiteboard it for you now that they've done it. Exactly. So after that's all over and we get to the bit, I think the ending of this film is as good and as satisfying as like the trick ending of Murder on the Orient Express or the Maltese Falcon. And here's why. Just when you think, and I'll admit, I totally bit this hook. I totally bit this hook. Just when you think this movie has eaten the sentimentality pill. And just when you think of William, the kids telling it before, he's not all bad. I don't think he's all bad. And just when you think, okay, that was a lot of fun, but yeah, okay, Russell Crowe is going to give himself up. He kills the other guys on his team for Christian Bale. He's going to get on the train and do the right thing. Just when you're like, all right, that was still kind of fun. He whistles for the horse. Mm -hmm. And as an audience member, that made me laugh out loud. I thought that was great. And it's so good because yeah, Ben Wade isn't all, isn't all bad. 
but he's not a sucker either. And I think the movie gets to have its cake and eat it, eat it too in a wonderful, wonderful way. I don't want to bite too hard into the symbolism of trains, but what do you think trains mean in this movie? Escape. I think I, I think it's partially escape and partially progress or like a, escape as a non-forming manhood. There, There is something very, very satisfying, very old timey about yeah. this movie where in the West you either have you either have the highest or lowest values, but nothing in between. I think that's why they try to make all the railroad guys so contemptible. <laughs> and and it, just like just like anything else, it's either depending on what Western you're watching, it's either barbed wire or the train, right? But the East is coming for you, yeah. And everybody's trying to escape it, and that's why I think that they make such strange bedfellows. Which is, yeah. I mean, this is it, this is a buddy cop movie, but it's a buddy cop movie interpreted by James Mangold with two stars. Uh, you know, and a, a a set in Nevada somewhere. Yeah, when he whistles for that horse, though, I laughed. I laughed out loud watching it. I'm like, that what a great move. And uh, there's um, certainly something with the shooting effects that they only save for the last minute because the difference between the rest of the gunfights in this movie and then what they allow Russell Crowe to do visually is so different. And so that this movie is about like the delayed gratification of one special effect that they only allow to go off in the last two minutes. But it is, again, it's, it's intensely satisfying to the audience. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's all, and again, to, to push on what you just said about what James Mangold does well, he whistles for the horse. You don't see him get on the horse, but you know, what's going to happen. You just see the horse run after the train and you, you do the math in your mind about what's about to happen. And like, that's again, that's so satisfying. And it's almost like if James Mangold were next to you, he would say, see, you doubted me, you doubted me. But I was one step ahead of you. And that's a great feeling. Right. And it's there's something there's something about control going on. It's there's something about right in in the West, you should be in control of your own destiny. So if you choose to ride a train, you know, then you are allowing yourself to be carried somewhere, which is how Christian Bale feels in the beginning. He feels like his life is just carrying him. Um, But you can either limp there or you can ride there. But ultimately, you got to be in control. Thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about 310 to Yuma. Send us requests. You can follow us on Twitter at 15MINFilm. You can also follow us on Letterboxd. Let us know what to watch. We'll see you next time.